Coming up today, it's episode 87 of In the Front Row with Mike Vicaro. We sit down with former basketball coach Kevin Eastman. He shares his journey with us from New Jersey to the University of Richmond, where he was a thousand point scorer in their Athletic Hall of Fame. Eventually became a head coach in the Division I level at UNCW, among some other stops, and then an assistant coach in the NBA, working alongside Doc Rivers with the Boston Celtics and the Clippers, winning a championship in the NBA in 2008. He tells us about the journey, he tells us about the players he coached and learned from as well as he gives us his top five players that he was able to coach in his career. Now a motivational speaker and an author as well, he shares what you can do to get him to speak to your group, whether it's a team or whether it's a business. It's all coming up, episode 87 of In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro featuring Kevin Eastman. Well, first of all, uh, I appreciate you spending a little time with us here today and, and share your story with us that, uh, you know, for, for UNCW folks maybe watching this, that includes a couple of years with UNCW, but you're a guy that has uh, New Jersey roots to you, uh, born in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Tell us about the early days for you and, and where sports were with you in your life. Obviously, basketball became your sport, but but what were you playing growing up? Yeah, I think like any kid, um, you dabble in whatever is out there in the backyard at the time. So whether that be uh, uh, wiffle ball, whether that be kicking a soccer ball around, whether that be uh, throwing the football and, and playing football. Um, but it always seemed to me that I got back to basketball. It was a sport I enjoyed. It was a sport I could do on my own. It was a sport where you could actually see improvement. Um, in some of the other sports, uh, maybe not quite as much in my mind anyway. So, um, so I kind of migrated to basketball, I would say maybe around, uh, seventh grade and, uh, tried out for my first team and, and made that. And then, uh, as I recall, it was a number of years ago, but as I recall, had a, a obviously a good experience there. And the more, uh, you enjoy doing something, the more you'll keep doing it. And the more you keep doing it, uh, the more you're likely to improve in that. So that's kind of what happened for me. Uh, whether I lucked into basketball, I don't know. But for some reason, uh, it was a sport I ended up uh, loving, choosing, and um, has had a, a big impact on my life. In 1973, you go to the University of Richmond. How's the New Jersey kid get to Richmond? Because obviously you had a great career there. But tell us about, uh, you know, that recruitment to Richmond. Yeah, it, it kind of. Uh, well, first of all, as you're as you're beginning uh, your high school career, I never really thought about uh, scholarship. I, I and, and I really don't think about uh, awards or rewards uh, even to this day. Um, to me, it's all about uh, just being as good as you can uh, where you are at that moment and continuing to try and improve in, in whatever it is you're, uh, you're, you're in, in my case, basketball. So, you know, my career, uh, I started as a sophomore and, and uh, started for three years. Uh, as freshman, you couldn't play on the varsity at the high school I went to. So, um, uh, I had some, again, early success, and I think that was part of uh, the work that I put in uh, because you don't have success unless there's there's work that that 
kind of is the foundation of that success. So um, as I started to become, get to the end of my junior year, I started to receive some college, some letters from colleges. And that's when it first hit me that, wow, uh, maybe I can go to college and play. So then by the time my senior year started, um, back then you didn't really have early signing periods like they do now. So for me, it was just playing my high school uh, senior season. I really didn't think too much about recruiting, even though I got some phone calls during the year. Um, and then as I as I started to get solid offers, some legitimate offers to to play at institutions, uh, it kind of it, it kind of came down to uh, the University of Richmond because I I liked their staff. Uh, they did a good job of developing a relationship. Uh, I thought they were were good people. Uh, I, I I thought I could relate to them. Uh, so it came down to the University of Richmond and a couple of schools where I was from. And at the time, uh, it was called the Big Five in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And uh, in particular, for me, it was St. Joe's and Temple uh, that I came down to from close to home schools. And I eventually just chose uh, the University of Richmond. It just felt right. Uh, when I was on the campus and I kept thinking about it after my visit. So I think that was telling me something. Um, and, you know, it ended up being a great decision for me. Yeah, you were a, a captain for two years, a thousand point score. You're in the Athletic Hall of Fame. I said, I know you said you, you don't worry about awards or rewards, but to be in your school's Athletic Hall of Fame, what does that mean to you, you know, when you look back at it? Yeah, you know, I'm appreciative of it and I respect uh, the work that goes in to anyone making uh, a Hall of Fame, uh, regardless of the level. Uh, the level. Um, so uh, from that aspect, uh, I, I was very appreciative. Um, but again, it, 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 it wasn't ever something that motivated me. I never thought about it. Um, I think you just take care of uh, uh, take care of business where you are. Uh, always try and stay on a kind of a growth and improvement uh, path or journey. Uh, and then I think it leads you uh, where it's supposed to lead you. Um, if you're not Hall of Fame worthy, then you're not Hall of Fame worthy. If you are, then uh, more times than not, that that will that will occur. Uh, but again, it wasn't something that I just like was dying to 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 make. I never really thought about it. And if you if you really watch even the the high level Hall of Fames, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the Baseball Hall of Fame, you know the uh, Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame, many of the of the people who make that, uh, you know, it wasn't like an everyday thought for them. The everyday thought was, let me try and become the best I can become, and that's for whatever reason I was lucky enough to have that mindset growing up. Well, after playing, I guess coaching was what you're trying to be the best at. When did you think that coaching was going to be, you know, part of your future and and, and what you were going to do? Yeah, I kind of thought um, at the end of, as I was getting to the end of my senior year, okay, what am I going to do? And there was a league that opened up a professional league that took the place of the old ABA. Uh, in today's current landscape, there's the NBA and there's the G League, kind of the minor league system for uh, professional basketball. Back then, they didn't have that. They had the NBA and the ABA. Well, the ABA folded. They started a new league called the AABA, 
they, they decided to put a franchise in Richmond, Virginia that served the entire state of Virginia. And uh, I was fortunate enough to make that team. So I got to play for about, I don't know, it was maybe six, seven months. And then the league folded, didn't have enough financial backing. So at that point, I had to decide, okay, you know, what is it? And uh, at the time, there was a brand new coach coming to the University of Richmond by the name of Lou Getz. He was an assistant coach at Duke uh, when they were very good uh, uh, back in the day. So uh, Lou wanted to hire someone who had an attachment to the school. And I was available. We talked and uh, I ended up getting a graduate assistant's position. Because uh, I wasn't ready for a full-time position uh, just out of school. So um, part of what I had to do, my responsibility was working with players, trying to improve their skills. So what I ended up doing was uh, uh, starting what became a really important part of, of my coaching career, and that was the skill development area. And because uh, ultimately the skill development area was what eventually got me into the NBA. So uh, that's kind of how it happened. And I always loved the game. I, I love uh, helping players get better. I loved being in the gym and, and sweating just like the players did. And uh, what you find as you get in, as you were, as I, for me anyway, what I found as I was in this more, uh, more and more years is players love coaches who sweat with them. They're down on the floor. They're really working with them. They're hands-on. They're literally hands-on, pushing, shoving, grabbing, right? Uh, just like, would happen in a game. So um, that's how it happened to me. So it allowed me to stay in, in, a, in an area of, of uh, life that I loved, which was basketball. And uh, even to this day, even though I'm now uh, uh, speaking as, as, as kind of my profession and my career right now to both sports teams uh, and corporate teams, basketball is still a theme. And did you did you know right away once you started to get into it that that this was going to be your calling, that being a coach and, and as you said, the skill development coaching, that was going to be your thing and what you really enjoyed? Well, I knew I really enjoyed it. I didn't know really even what the word calling meant. Uh, it was just something that uh, I loved, that people told me I was pretty good at. Uh and that I saw firsthand helped others. So when you combine those three things together, that's 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 not a bad thing to wake up to every day. So uh, again, I, I don't like consciously think about like uh, I, I guess you could say I knew my purpose, uh, but I didn't think of it in terms of that, right? That word. It's just kind of what I did, what I loved, uh, what I was good at, what I could share with others, and what I could but I could help others become better at. So, um, and uh, logic states to me, uh, if you love something, try and stay in that something for as long as you can. Well, you certainly did. You got your start as an assistant coach, eventually a head coach in 1986 at Belmont Abbey, just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. What was that experience like for you to be a head coach for the first time? Gosh, you know my bio better than I do. Uh, I'm going to have to think back to these things. Uh, well, I was very lucky that I got to start in, at a level that wasn't a high profile, high visibility level, because you could make mistakes at that level. And only the 14 people who came to the game knew you made that mistake. Right. So from that standpoint, I was very lucky. It allowed me to to to, to try a lot of things, to try and figure out 
you know, how I coach. Um, so uh, it was a, it was a really good stop. And it also made me think about, OK, not just the skills of the game, but how do we incorporate the skills of the game? when we have five players who have different skills on the floor at one time and how do we mesh them into becoming uh, a, a true team? Um, so uh, that was kind of a, uh, a, a fun yet challenging journey for me. Yeah, that was on the NAIA level and not quite division one in the NCAA. Eventually you got there. Your first division one NCAA job was with UNCW 1990 uh, to 94. You were with the Seahawks uh, Take us through that that time and what it was like because it was still kind of early days for UNCW right before their their you know they they started to make their NCA tournament runs. Yeah, um, you know, I I I guess I look at it and I, and I kind of saw it there as trying to um, reestablish the program as best I could. Uh, Mel, uh, Coach Gibson did a did a great job uh, uh, a number of years prior to that. Uh, uh, having some good players come in, uh, even a Brian Rousen came in and made it to the NBA. Um, and, and then it kind of, uh, hit a little bit of a speed bump and that's what allowed me to, 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 to come into the job. So, um, we just had to kind of maybe clean up a couple of things to start. And I knew it was going to take a little bit of time to do that. Um, you know, every coach wants to win right away, uh, but in your own heart, and your own mind, you may not say it publicly, but you have to know um, where you are uh, or where the program is and where it needs to go and and um, and, and and how far that 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 journey will be. So, um, again, we just did the best we could each and every day that we came in there. Uh, I think we started to. Uh, turn that thing. And then Jerry Wainwright took over and he took it to a, a whole new level, um, you know, and, and, um, uh, you know, uh, coach Keats came in, I believe after Jerry, maybe, do I have that right? I was Brownell, Brownell, and then, uh, eventually oh, yeah. Kevin Keats. Well, gosh, right there is three really good coaches <laughs> and, and, and they even got a great coach now. Yeah. So, um, so I can honestly say, thank goodness they've gotten four people better than me. So, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it's fun to follow them. Uh, and I think what it what it says to the to the to the profession of coaching is, especially with what uh, those three we just talked about ha had done in their careers and are still doing in their careers, that UNC Wilmington is a, is a great place to coach basketball. Well, again, you, you developed, you went from 11 wins your first year, 18 wins your last year there during that span. Um, what was the CAA like at that time? Because it was still kind of pretty early on, I guess, in the CAA. Yeah, well, they had um, they had the University of Richmond, which uh, at the time was coached by Dick Tarrant, and, and they were very, very good, uh, really good program. And then um, in another part of Virginia, they had this kind of crazy guy, Lefty Drizel. <laughs> who turned around really the uh, James Madison program. So those were kind of the two schools that, as I recall, everyone was kind of chasing, right? Trying to beat. 
Um, so uh, that was the challenge of the day at the time. And, uh, you know, what I have found then or what I knew then and what I certainly know now is it is a league of very good coaches. They're just not household names. And um, at the time, uh, there might have been one or two teams that you could say, yeah, we'll probably get uh, two wins against them, you know, at our place and at their place. Um, but then as you got towards the top of the league, there were it was tough to get a win anywhere. Uh, so, you know, I've always said to young coaches, the most difficult league in the country it's not necessarily the power five leagues. The most difficult league in the country is the league that you actually coach in because that's who you're going to face uh, uh, each and every year. Uh, and you have to get through that kind of gauntlet of games in order to have the season that not only the coaches and the players want and the administration wants, but also what the uh, the fans and the backing uh, wants as well. And uh, that's one thing I'll say about UNC Wilmington is um, especially at the time, um, the crowds were really good, really loud, and really helped uh, the team. Uh, so, and I even had other coaches say that to us. You know, your your fans are, are uh, the UNCW fans are, are, when you guys get it going on the court, are really, really loud and tough to overcome. So, and I'm sure it's the same now. Yeah, we, we officially call trash the toughest place to play in the CAA. It's certainly become that once again. You know, for you, again, a couple of stops, and then eventually you make your way to the NBA as an assistant coach in 2004. What led to that? Because at the time you were the athletic director at Randolph-Macon and also working with Nike Basketball. So so how did you get from that to the NBA and a nice relationship that you had with Doc Rivers, head coach in the NBA? Well, uh, for me, it came down to, to kind of a personal philosophy that I had uh, about life and success. And that was never pass up a basketball opportunity. So on my drive home one day from Randolph-Macon as the athletic director, I got a call from a, uh, an older coach by the name of Glenn Wilkes, who used to, at, in the day, run a bunch of clinics around the country. And this particular one was in uh, Tupelo, Mississippi, uh, in a uh, hotel and uh, um it was kind of like a Vegas hotel, you know, gambling was in there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, slot machines, all that sort of stuff. So uh, he called me on my way home from Ashland, Virginia, where Randolph Macon is, and Richmond, Virginia, where uh, my wife Wendy and I were living at the time. And um, he said, hey, Kevin, uh, what are you doing this weekend? And I said, well, uh, you know, nothing major plan. Why do you ask? He said, well, we had a we had a speaker cancel out on us. And we're wondering uh, if you would be willing to to fly in and 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 uh, take his place. So it was kind of a backhanded compliment. I got to speak at his clinic, but really I was like third choice, right? So I always I always say yes. So I said yes, and he said I thought you would. Uh, we have you on a four thirty flight out this afternoon. So he already knew I was going to say yes. So I go down there. Long story short. And I do my thing, which was a skill development session for about an hour and 15 minutes. And at the end of it, I'm drenched. The players are drenched. You know, a lot of teaching points, a lot of coaching points. Well, someone in the stands uh, worked for Nike and he was higher up in Nike. His name was George Raveling. Yeah. And yeah. So if you ask anyone at Nike who are some of the most powerful people who have ever worked there, of course, they'll say Phil Knight. But usually right after Phil Knight is George Raveling. 
that's how much of an impact he had at Nike when he was the uh, when he basically oversaw basketball for them. Um, and George at the time was running a camp called the All American Camp, which had the best players in the country come there. And every college coach in the country would stay for that week just to watch the players, evaluate them and see who they would recruit or try to recruit. So uh, George asked if, if I would speak to him. And of course I did. So anyway, that turned into working at Nike, which turned into when I left coaching, when I left Washington State, Nike kind of hired me to go around and, and, and work out all their great players in high school. Uh, because obviously that was the starting point of building a relationship to eventually get those who were worthy of it to wear the shoe when they became professional players. So um, one of the teams I had to work out was in Orlando, Florida. And to make a very long story uh, short, uh, one of the players on the team, I didn't know it at the time because I didn't know all the players. I just knew the one or two players that were like the key players on that team. And it was a AAU team, kind of summer basketball. One of the players went home to his parents, um, his father, and said, we had this great guy and he was unbelievable and he was talking real highly about me and sweating with him, working him out and that sort of thing. Um, well, it turns out this guy's father was Doc Rivers <laughs> and he was close to taking an NBA job. Uh, he took the Celtics job, but he had some other offers that particular year. Well, he wanted to get some new blood into his system and in particular, a skill development guy. So that unbeknownst to me, had I had I said no to that uh, request from his name was Coach Wilkes to speak at that clinic. Yeah, I wouldn't have been working out Doc's son. Right. Therefore, I wouldn't have been in the NBA. So uh, it it, it kind of just said to me once again, never pass up a basketball opportunity. So yeah, it's crazy uh, how that works out sometimes. Right. Yeah. Well, you got to work to make it work out. Right. You know, uh, and that's why I tell players and coaches all the time. Everyone wants to get to the next level. But guess what? It, it, it requires next level skills, next level commitment, next level drive, next level discipline, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, a, a really good run with the Boston Celtics. You were there until 2013 and you win the championship, the NBA championship in 2008. You're talking about good players. Obviously, you had a great big three with Ray Allen. Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce. What was it like being an assistant coach, working with those guys and, and seeing them develop to win that championship? Yeah, I mean, when people say, what was it like? The, the, almost my immediate reaction every time is it was a great learning environment for me because I saw what it took to become the best, both from a coaching standpoint, uh, from what those players did, you know, those players don't just take a uh, become a great basketball player pill. I mean, the great players are great because of the incredible work ethic they have. So I saw that on a daily basis and I saw how intentional they were about their work. And the other thing that you have, because we were one of the early, quote, big three teams. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Miami Heat was after us when LeBron went there. But um, uh, early on, we were kind of the 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 uh, uh, beginning uh, parts of this big three concept. Um, so when you have a big three and they're all that good, and they've all had uh, pretty much gotten everything out of the game except one thing. 
and that was an NBA championship. In order to get that, what you learn is you have to sacrifice something. Everyone can't keep doing what they've been doing their entire career because all three of them took the most shots on their team for their entire career because they were the player on that team. So that's something in the sport of basketball that uh, not every player wants to give up, and that's shot attempts. Because the less shot attempts, the less points, right? So um, interestingly enough, the guy who gave kind of sacrifice the most was Ray Allen. And Ray was a great shooter, uh, but he was required to take less shots because we needed to, 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 to share the ball. We wanted them to be we wanted opponents to have to defend everybody all game, not one player all game or two players all game. So the biggest the biggest um, lesson I learned is is uh, about the sacrifice it takes uh, to get to the level of competing for a championship. And what I learned even more importantly than that was there are two levels of sacrifice. Teams that do a lot of winning, they understand that players will have to give something up. And that's what most people, how most people would define sacrifice. But what you find in a championship organization is that sacrifice is not something you just give up. More importantly, it's something you do for. You give up this shot, even though you're Ray Allen, one of the best shooters in the game, because Paul Pierce has a better shot. Well, Ray's not thinking of it in terms of giving it up. He's thinking in terms of doing it for like, that's a, that's a better shot right now. So I'm going to pass up my shot and throw it to Paul. Right. So uh, it was more about what we all learned about each other. You know, uh, Jim Rohn and some of your older people may know that name, R-O-H-N. He was a great thought leader back in the eighties. And, uh, one thing he used to say is, uh, it's not so much what you get, it's what you become from winning something big, right? It's not so much what you get, the ring, right? The ring, the the the, the 17 diamonds that are on our championship ring. As a matter of fact, it's, I'm not exactly sure where it is. I'm embarrassed to say that because that wasn't the most important thing, right? It was not so much what we got, it's what we became because of what we had to go through to win a championship. We all became more disciplined. We all became, uh, uh, you know, more focused. So anyway. And, and to do it, to to beat the Lakers and to be part of the, the Celtics-Lakers rivalry at that level, what was that like to kind of be in the inside and, and see maybe some of the history in the, the past, but then the history that you were creating in, in 2008 as well? Yeah, well, the interesting thing about that is, as the season progressed, everybody probably knew that those two teams were going to end up facing each other to win a title, right? To win the NBA championship. So when we played each other, you know, we played each other twice uh, because they're a Western conference team. We were an Eastern conference team. So you only play cross conference teams twice. Uh, so anyway, um, they beat us at our place. We ended up beating them at their place. So we kind of both sent a message to each other that year that, <clears throat> yeah, we know you're good, but uh, even if you get home court over us, we can beat you. We can beat you on your home court. So there was a confidence uh, in that. Now, 
the lack of confidence came in, gosh, they beat us in our court. Can we protect our home court if we do get a uh, home court advantage? Um, so anyway, we had a we kind of had a tough uh, road to the finals in 2008, the first time we met them in the finals. 2010, we met them again. So in 2008, I think we we had to go uh, seven games twice. You know, you play four series if you get all the way, right? So we had two that went seven games and the other two went six games. So almost the maximum number of games it would take to win an NBA championship. So that year, I want to say we played 111 or 117 games, something like that, counting exhibition. Uh, So it's a long season. It was a grind. So but again, what you learn is uh, one of the most important parts of when the best go against the best is who can who can overcome and who can get through and who can get past the hard parts of the game, the bad parts of the game where you have to have a resiliency uh, and ability to continue to come back, even though you're not playing well. Right. And um, when we won it in 2008, we did that a little bit better than the Lakers did when they won that uh, against us in 2010. They probably did a little bit better job of that than 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 we did that year. But, you know, when you were at that level, um, it's not like, you know, the the young kids who are playing in YMCA basketball, you know, uh, no one no one is entitled to anything at that level, certainly not a championship. No one's entitled to playing time at that level. No one's entitled to a set number of shots at that level when the best go against the best. So there were just uh, so many lessons uh, that were learned, but also just soaking in the environment, Uh, whether it be uh, at our place in the Boston Garden where our players were two feet from us, maybe not even maybe even less than that. And we couldn't even hear each other. It was that loud. You know, I'm not sure in timeouts whether they saw Doc's mouth moving. I'm not sure they heard what he was saying. And he was shouting. I mean, it was that loud. You you know, your ears literally hurt at the end of a game. And, uh, you know, when you go to L.A., maybe not quite as loud, but it's it's kind of the star factor there. Right. You've got Jack Nicholson sitting two seats or three seats from from the end of our bench, right? Uh, you have all these stars coming in to watch because uh, that's when they show up, right? Yeah. Uh, when it's the finals. And then you're playing against such an iconic player like Kobe Bryant, right? Um, and, uh, you know, Pau Gasol, who just got into the Hall of Fame, uh, he was on that team. Uh, uh, Ron Artest uh, was on that team. Uh, so they had a, 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 a tremendous team with a hall of fame coach and Phil Jackson. Uh, but the f- most fun part of it was that both teams wanted it so badly and both teams played so hard and both teams tried to rip the heart out of the other team, uh, as best they could. Uh, so you really got a feel of like what it's like when the best go against the best. Yeah, that had to be a great experience. Like you said, 2008, a little bit better than 2010 when you're able to uh, win that championship. But eventually, Doc Rivers moves on to the Clippers, takes you with him as well. I know recently he said he kind of regrets leaving the Celtics. 
what went into your decision to to stick with him and and make that journey across the country to uh, L.A.? Well, I believed in 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 uh, what he did and how he did it. Um, and when you first start with someone, at least for me anyway, you go into say your first position in the NBA, and you're you're a little tentative. There's a seed of doubt there, right? And you're coaching for this guy who's so well respected around the league from how he kind of got more out of himself than probably his natural athletic talent would have allowed him to. And then just the respect he had around the league of not only being um, uh, an exceptional coach, but also a first class person and the ability to uh, to relate to all types of people. So you go in from maybe a little bit scared, a little bit doubting to becoming, you know, good friends. Right. So that's how the progression of that relationship worked. And um, it just made sense to me. Uh, he knew how to win. Uh, he could work with star players. And, and we had uh, we were going into uh, having both Chris Paul, uh, who will be in the Hall of Fame, and then and then Blake Griffin, who was a, a, a multiple time all star. So once again, uh, some superstars that you had to coach. And Doc was good at coaching those guys, those types of guys, rather. Uh, and not everyone can. You know, everyone, uh, you know, all my friends say, well, it must be great to, to coach Kevin Garnett. But uh, what they don't understand is Hall of Fame players put Hall of Fame expectations on your knowledge your coaching, your teaching, your ability to adjust in the game, your ability to tell them uh, as succinctly as possible what they're doing wrong in the game at that time. So that when they go out of it, get back out of a timeout, they can improve in that area. Right. There, there, there's a there's a lot of pressure to be at your best. And that was the other thing you learned about getting to the finals. Everyone's good. The players are good. The trainers are good. The front office is good. The assistant coaches are good. The head coaches are good. That's why they get there, right? So you have to be at the top of your game. Um, so, um, you know, that was probably a, a long uh, and diluted answer to a very short question. So if you want to get more specific with that, uh, feel free. Well, again, it seems like, like you said, Doc Rivers, good coach, great person. So obviously that relationship between the two of you was able to build through the years. Eventually you decided to, to step away. You retired. I know, as you said, you're doing some speaking engagements now. You wrote a book as well. Why the best are, are the best. Um, how are you enjoying life now? Is it is it, you know, as enjoyable away from the game as as it was when you were in the game? Yeah, every bit is enjoyable. Um, you know, I always get asked. Uh, do you miss it? And um, I, I, I don't because I think when you know it's your time, uh, you really won't uh, miss it because you knew you knew you got the most out of it. Uh, you, uh, you did the best you could. You left on good terms. Now, uh, you know, had Doc said, hey, Kevin, you're horrible. Uh, I need to get rid of you. That may have been a different story. Maybe I had to go somewhere else and try and prove myself before I left the game. Right. So uh, so I knew it was time and I knew because uh, I had always done coaching clinics. So I enjoyed sharing uh, my experiences and the lessons I've learned with coaches around the country. Uh, and then uh, when we won the championship in Boston, I was asked by a couple of firms, co companies in, in Boston, 
hey, do you mind coming over and just sharing with with our team, whether that be uh, 20 people or 150 people? Uh, what were some of the things you guys did to give you a chance to be like the best at what you do? So after I gave those two talks, uh, I said, you know, th th this environment is also enjoyable. Um, so I said, you know, at some point when I get out of coaching, I'll probably want to see if I can't amp this up. So when I decided to leave coaching and get into speaking, I, I knew I would resonate in the sports world, especially basketball, because I had developed and built a name um, in, in that industry. So I figured, OK, that's where I can start. Right. Um, so I started there and probably the first year I did maybe, I don't know, 20 talks, probably 18 of those were to sports teams and in particular men's college basketball, because that's where I most resonated. Well, you, you you fast forward to seven or I don't know how many years it's been now, uh, maybe uh, eight years, seven years I've been out of the NBA. And now uh, now I've got it to a comfortable pace. I do about 40 talks a year. Uh, at the height, when I was really trying to get the, the thing going, I was doing about 70, 75 talks a year. So uh, we've now got it to a nice rhythm, a nice pace. Um, and it's been fun. Um, you know, uh, it's now not just men's basketball, in the sporting world anyway, it's not just men's basketball. It's also women's basketball. It's it's uh, it's uh, college football. Uh, it's Major League Baseball. It's the NFL. You get to see all these different, you know, because you're going into speak, you also can go in to observe and learn, right? So uh, just seeing how coaches do it, like, for instance, in basketball, and this is no no disrespect to to, to the team I'm about to 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 mention here but you get to see what someone say at the columbia level in the ivy league how they're trying to 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 run their program and then you go and you speak to kansas and you're who's at the top of like say college basketball right and see how how they're doing it and and you you see everything in between right you get in and you get some of the insides of alabama football of clemson football right how are they doing it because at the time when I was in 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 their buildings, right, uh, uh, they were both at the very top, and you could see how uh, Dabo Sweeney was doing it one way, and Nick Saban was doing it in another way, right? And yet they both, and they were really opposite in many ways, but they both uh, were ultra successful. So, um, and then the corporate speaking, um, that's been that's been very enjoyable as well, and that's whether you're speaking to I don't know, a leadership team of 12 at a Fortune 100, 500 company, or uh, oh, uh, I'm speaking to 3,500 people in Barcelona, Spain. Wow. It doesn't matter, right? You're sharing the lessons learned from all the good fortunes you've had of, of being in the places you've been to have those experiences that allowed you to develop and the lessons that you learned and then you could share them with other people um because you know i wish when i was a younger coach i i had more of that um and what you hope is especially in the sports world is that maybe you can help help some teams uh think about things a little bit differently because more times than not uh with sports teams i'm brought in to, to speak about the book that i wrote why are the best the best 
And then when I take a, a team uh, or a staff behind the scenes, I mean deep behind the scenes with stories about players they would know or, or coaches they would know. And look, this is how we did this. This is what is needed. This is what you have to, in your heart of hearts, in your own mind, in your truth, your own truth, am I doing that? Am I doing that? Right? Because, as I say in the book, the best are the best for a reason. And our job is to find out what those reasons are. And then once we find out what they are, ask ourselves, am I doing that? Maybe an individual player, am I doing that? Or the team? Let's say UNCW's team. Are you guys doing this? Because it's been proven. We've seen it. I've lived it. This helps you win championships. Above and beyond talent. Because there's a lot of talent in the NBA. Even the bad teams have players with talent. But there's a different type of player that does it a little bit different way that wins championships. So that's been the fun part of it. And it seems like, as you said, fun for you, educational for you as well. How can people maybe watching this that maybe want to invite you to, to speak to their team or speak to their, their business? Uh, how can they get in touch with you? Is there a website or a way to, to get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, the easiest thing is to go on kevineastman.net and then just go to up top, just hit the speaking uh, link and that'll take you right there uh, for both the book and for uh uh, speaking engagements. So, uh, you know, that that's probably the easiest for them. But we're going to leave you on this. We usually ask our guests a top five for you. I want the top five coaches you, you've you had the joy of coaching in your career, albeit at any level. You you know, you touched on some of them here recently, but who, who are the top five players maybe that you've really enjoyed, you know, working with, coaching and teaching along the way? So players or coaches or both? Uh, we'll go both. We'll go both. Yikes. I was hoping you'd say one or the other. All right. Well, all right. Well, then players. Let's go top five so players. Top five players. Players. Uh, without a doubt, number one was Kevin Garnett. Um, because he uh, everything he put into the game and put into the team and put into his teammates. That isn't often seen uh, by the public. Um, you know, and, and we won't get into it here, but there's some stories I tell sports teams about, look, you know, this is what a true teammate, how they how they operate in and amongst their teammates. So Kevin would be up there. Uh, Ray Allen, just simply because uh, of his work ethic. And he is that good a shooter because he works on it diligently uh, and intentionally each and every day. We had a player by the name of James Posey, uh, who really was key in us winning uh, the NBA championship in 2008. Um, he was important uh, or probably one of the best. Now, now, guys I didn't coach, but I worked with, you know, you'd put Kevin Durant in there. You'd put LeBron James in there. Uh, those Kobe Bryant in there. Uh, those types of guys as well, obviously. Uh, Chris Paul was 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 also a great guy to to uh, to work with. Um, Willie Green is now the head coach of the New Orleans Pelicans. Uh, people may not know his name as a player, uh, but he's an integral part of any good team because he's such a good teammate, garners such respect. Uh, J.J. Redick. J.J. was one similar to um, uh, to Ray Allen. 
JJ is a great shooter because he spends a lot of time working on that part, that skill, right? You can throw in there some personalities like a Shaq, who we had in Boston, Rashid Wallace, who we had in Boston, Gary Payton, who we had in Boston. Uh, so uh been fortunate to be, be around uh, a number of Hall of Fame players. And again, I keep getting back to this. Uh, where I felt I was most fortunate is that they taught me things that I can now share with others, whether it be people in the in the corporate world or people in the sports world. It allows me to share uh, those lessons learned from people that they've probably seen and certainly heard of. So in your mind, the common thread is that they taught you more than you taught them? I think a lot of coaches would tell you that. You know, you'd like to think that we 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 shared teachings with each other. You know, and this is something that's a little foreign in the corporate world, but you find out all the time, especially with the best teams. Now, the bad teams, I don't, I don't know, maybe not. But many times, even in a timeout, uh, the head coach in a timeout will say, even in key parts of a game, what do you guys see? What do you think? What do you want to run? Right? Because they're actually not just seeing it, they're feeling it, and they're having to go through it. and. And they may see or be aware of things that even a coach isn't, right? That's why they call it a team. A team is not just the athletes on the field or the court. A team is the athletes and coaches who are together that night or that day competing against another group of players and coaches, right? So wouldn't it make sense like for all of us to try and help each other whenever we can and for none of us to think we know it all, right? Those are those are the losing teams, the know-it-all coaches, the know-it-all players. You know, I, I often say this, you know, uh, what I found traveling around the, the world, really, uh, with my speaking now, is there's two types of people in this world. There's know-it-alls, and I ha hate being around them, but there's know-it-alls and there's learn-it-alls. We wanted a team full of learn-it-alls. And that championship run we had, they really were. And what you find out about the, the elite players in the game, they still want to get better. The Kobe's, the Kate, Kevin Durant's, right? The Steph's, uh, the Kevin Garnett's when he was playing, the Paul Pierce's, the Ray Allen's, right? The Rajan Rondo's, they all wanted to get better as they were the Chris Paul's, the Blake Griffin's, the DeAndre Jordan's. They wanted to get better. Because they weren't know-it-alls. They knew a lot about the game, but they also knew there were some things they didn't know that they needed to know to get to where they wanted to go in the game. And they weren't afraid to ask the questions. You know, the great players ask a lot of questions. I don't think the public knows that. At least all the great ones I've been around. They were so curious. Great advice. Great advice, and I, I can see why you're so successful at what you do traveling the world, as you said, being a, a motivational speaker and speaking to teams, speaking to businesses as well. Coach, I appreciate your time here today. It's been great to uh, you know go down memory lane with you a little bit and, and, and again, hear your advice and, and what you tell people. It's, uh, it's some really good stuff, and uh, I wish you the best of luck as you continue to, to spread that uh, you know, what you've learned from these great athletes, as you said, it's it's great to be a learner and, and try to continue to learn as as we continue to do on this show as well. Well, thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. And um, I, I just kind of want to uh, say thank you to you, and not just for having me on, but more importantly, 
to providing a platform for people to actually uh, listen to other people and their experiences. And my guess is many of the people you have had on your show uh, have tasted and and are still uh, uh, in, in a world of success. So uh, that was number one. And number two is, uh, since it is a little UNCW oriented uh, with, with you being on this uh, uh, podcast and, 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 and directing it, uh, I do have to let people know uh, who are UNCW followers that um, were it not for my years in UNCW, uh, among other places, I wouldn't have the the good fortune uh, that I have now to be doing what I'm doing or to have done what I've done uh, in, in in my career. So uh, UNCW was an important stop, a pivotal stop, uh, and one I will never forget. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. More great lessons learned from another guest here. And again, Kevin Eastman telling us about what he learned from some of the best that he has been around. As always, we invite you to like, to share, and to subscribe to our podcast as we continue to have more great guests and more great lessons in the journeys that they share with us as well. For JR Quitman, our creator, producer, and director, I'm Mike Vaccaro. We'll see you next time. Another episode of In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.